This is Tommy Maddox Upshaw, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How are you? I am doing uh, amazingly well. How are you doing? You, you look Jim Dandy. You, you, you have no traces of coronavirus. You look, you look good. I work for hours to do makeup, uh, so ah. I, so I look just like I used to look normally. It's uh, a lot of airbrushing and stippling. I've got a stipple sponge right here. People have made jokes about how the most popular background for Zoom will just be your room but clean. Uh, I think it's also going to be like, you know, very soon there is going to be masking the well-rested version of yourself every time you get on Zoom. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who is on the show today, Ilya? Today on the show, we have the talented Tommy Maddox Upshaw. Holy crap. He's, a, by the way, just a phenomenal guy to talk to. Really smart, really thoughtful. I just had a lot of amazing insights into the craft and the philosophy. I love it when people get all craft and philosophy on us. And he's got a great story that includes some people you might have heard of, like John Singleton and Spike Lee. So uh, I'll say no more, but it was a really interesting interview. And uh, he's currently shooting Snowfall on Hulu, which is uh, not just a great show, but a gorgeous show to look at about kind of the exploding crack epidemic in the in L.A. in the 1980s. Indeed, I have watched some of the series and I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. I need to go back to it. Yeah, and it looks really good. And he shot, he comes in in the third season, and I think he shot about half of the third season and most of the fourth. The fourth is still currently dropping. But before we get into that, we have possibly the most obvious close focus topic that we could ever have. As we're recording this, the Oscar nominations were announced today, this morning. Uh, We're recording this on Monday the 15th. And uh, we have our Best Cinematography nomination. So we can start our uh, ongoing debate about Who's going to win Best Cinematography out of this group? And I was pleasantly surprised, unbelievably pleasantly surprised to see that of the five nominees we have interviewed on our podcast, how many, Ilya? Do you know how many? Four. Four. Four of the five. Just blew my mind. And you were kind of telling me off mic ahead of time what our stats in that regard have been in the past. In the past, yeah, we've hit like all of the ASC noms. We've hit like two Academy Awards uh, nominations and then three Academy Award nominations. Uh, So now we're up to four. Uh, Four of the Academy Award nominated people uh, were on the show this year. And we actually have the potential to have uh, all five of them. So I'm going to caution you about picking a winner right now, Ben, because, you know, I I think that we we should say we love them all equally since, uh, you know, they've all been on the show or are about to come on the show. Well, and and, uh, we will actually save the discussion about who we think might win for when we have our friend Janelle Riley come on. Uh, She's an editor over at Variety to discuss all of them. But for those of you who haven't uh, looked this up on your phone while you listen to us yak about it, it is Judas and the Black Messiah, shot by Sean Bobbitt, Mank, shot by Eric Messerschmidt, News of the World, shot by Darius Walski, Nomadland, shot by Joshua James Richards, and The Trial of the Chicago 7 by our returning champion, Fade in Papa Michael, with, I believe, a record third appearance on the podcast. And, you know, there was a lot of other nominations that were historic this year. 
Stephen Yuen for Minari, or Minari, if, uh, depending on how you pronounce it. First Asian-American uh, leading man to get the Best Actor nomination. We also had two, I believe it's uh, Best Picture nominations uh, uh, directed by women, including one of them, Promising Young Women, who I, I'm going to go out and say right now is, uh, I think, is a dark horse, but it's a good dark horse. And uh, it could be like Silence of the Lambs year, where people didn't see it coming, but then, boom, it sneaks in at the end and, and gets all kinds of love. So, And certainly a great movie and a beautiful movie, and I'm, uh, a movie I'm really excited to have seen and uh you know first time director it's it's always uh always a big setup for it's like you're the first time director and now you got to live up to this for the rest of your life (laughs) like you can't just go make a fluff movie you are an oscar director from from now on for the rest of your career and and of course uh benjamin krashun who we had on like a week ago he wasn't nominated for cinematography but you know it got nominated for editing and uh, all these other incredible categories uh, i think that tells you a lot about like his achievement in cinematography as well but there just wasn't room for six people in there so i mean he, he did a, an incredible job and clearly you know he shot a best picture nomination for the you know for the academy awards i mean he's got to be pretty happy right now i would hope yeah and actually, uh, a little bummed out uh, for Lachlan that uh, Minari was not one of the nominated for Best Cinematography. Great work on his part in a gorgeous-looking movie. And But I, I do think it's interesting that Minari got so many of the noms. It's almost a thumb in the eye of the Golden Globes who had relegated that to a foreign language film. And the Academy is obviously just accepting that movie and uh, kind of showing how forward-looking they are about uh, these kinds of things. I'm sorry, I, I keep uh, backhanding the Golden Globes, but whatever. <laughs> And of course, Lachlan ought to be very uh, happy as well, too, because Minari uh, nominated for Best Picture. Maybe we should do like a a special where we do highlights of all the Oscar nominated DPs or people who are associated with Best Picture noms and kind of do an an Oscar special. That's just a mix of the interviews we've already done. Obviously not in their entirety because that would be 27 hours long. Yes, indeed. It's actually interesting to me, too, that like uh, the documentary features this year were not at all what I would have picked. And I know that, you know, the dissident was not the dissident was dissed. I couldn't the believe di- the dissident wasn't nominated. Assassins and dissident both dissed, both uh, not there. But I have to say that they are they are so nuclearly hot and controversial that it's possible that the Academy just wanted to get nowhere near them, which is surprising because usually they're they're kind of into that in the documentary space. So, yeah. Okay, so David Fincher nominated for Mank. I think that's interesting. You know, um, I believe that's his, is that his first nomination. David Fincher has been nominated uh, for Best Director twice before, uh, once for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and then also for The Social Network. Oh, interesting. So maybe third time's the charm for him. But also uh, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. So, and that's not just her first nomination; that's her first feature. Holy crap! Yes, indeed. And Lee Isaac Chung also nominated for Minari, which is like incredible. I mean, he's come from pretty much uh, obscurity thrust into the spotlight like this, which is amazing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually really pleased with the nominees as as I see them all laid out. Like, I think it's a good snapshot of what the films were that we were able to see this year, you know. And uh, I was wondering probably starting in the summer like how's the oscar race going to even be handled this year when we weren't even able to go to movies we weren't able to go see them in the theaters 
And uh, I think that uh, the streaming services really picked up the slack and and got behind, you know, between Amazon Prime and Netflix and Hulu. Like a lot of these movies were available for the general public, you know, exactly the same as they would have been in theaters. I'm assuming that next year's will go back to the normal way where people have to go see them in the movie theaters. But uh, given our extremely weird circumstances this year, I feel like these movies did become water cooler movies. A lot of people are talking about Minari and I'm glad that it's getting as much notice as it is. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting race this year. It'll be and I think that maybe for once there'll be a lot more people playing at home since a lot of people saw all of these movies. So for real, the, the home game version of the Oscar, the, the betting pools might be incredible. You know, we did talk to Darius Wolski, and I think that it's worth kind of bringing up News of the World, which is a movie that I feel like people haven't paid that much attention to also. But it is brilliant and gorgeous and a real change of pace for Paul Greengrass, the director. And, uh, you know, Darius Wolski is, again, one of those people who's just been churning out amazing, amazing work for decades. Agreed. And uh, he's definitely in the hunt this year because uh, it's a beautiful looking movie and it's a well-deserved nomination. Okay, so with that, let's get to the interview with Tommy Maddox Upshaw. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here. Actually, what city are you in right now? I'm in Englewood, California. Englewood. Awesome. So I'm talking just across town to uh, Tommy Maddox Upshaw. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Tommy. No doubt. Great to be here. So your most current project that's out is the current season of Snowfall, which is on Hulu. It's on FX, but it, that most people are probably going to find it on Hulu. Really interesting show, really kind of gritty show that takes place in L.A. that, uh, you know, from from decades ago. It's a wonderful show. But as I've been going through your filmography, noticing like actually you have a lot of comedy, like you've done tons and tons of comedy work. And it's interesting to see something. So uh, it's gritty, but it doesn't it, it feels like it's very photographic and very beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to work on Snowfall? My TV path is just that. I start. I, I got an opportunity to work on the last season of Kevin Hart's Real Husband in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. The Real Husbands of Hollywood. And a direct producer named Carl Craig, who I had worked with in the past on like a couple of TV movies, was the producer of that show. And the creators of the show are like Kevin Hart, Stan Lathan, and Ralph Farquhar. Um, these guys have been in the, the TV business for like talking 30 years. Stan Lathan oh, wow. started off as a director on like Sanford and Son. Ralph Farquhar, the other co-creator of the show, started off writing on Happy Days. He was the only black guy in the writer's room on what? Happy Days in the 70s. <laughs> Stan Lathan's an older black guy, same with Carl Craig. And they decided to give me an opportunity to dip my feet into television on this season of Real Husbands because I had a little bit of background because of the writer strike in reality TV. So mm-hmm. I had done a feature coming out of the American Film Institute during I was there and then a couple years coming out, which were like dramas and like one comedy. But it's like that introduction got me to the TV space, which led to other opportunities of shooting comedy TV shows, even though my jam is really kind of like dramatic you know, mm. dark stuff, you know, that relationship propelled me on, at least on TV path, while at the same time, Maddie Libatique brought me onto stuff like Iron Man 2, Straight Outta Compton, different commercials with him and Spike Lee. 
and you know yeah i noticed that we had we had maddie on the show a few a few months ago oh yeah i mean maddie's been yeah. a, a great friend mentor of mine for a very long time it seems like he does a lot to mentor uh, up-and-coming people like he's really good at kind of sending the elevator back down and helping people who are starting out kind of get established definitely maddie maddie is great maddie takes a liking to you the doors are open ask questions get challenged on set about stuff he's a great cinemaphile I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 awesome to work with. It's a great example. I, I take a lot of what I my approach from Maddie in terms of just like how to run a set, dealing with producers, all those things. And you know, and with that, you know, my relationships with Stan, Ralph, and Carl Craig, they help groom me into like how to navigate this TV space. I mean, these mm-hmm. guys have done it for a while. So then they gave me another opportunity. Stan Lathan gave me another opportunity uh, to do the comedy Get Down, and then from there I got into. Uh, I end up doing like a movie called Kalushi and then On My Block, which is like the dramedy of kids in, in, in this fictional L.A. And then it's kind of this amalgam, man. And I got into the, the John Singleton space because of twofold, one of which is John, who I had met over the years. And we have a lot of mutual friends. I live in South Los Angeles in Inglewood. He lived in South L.A. down the street in the, what's called the Dons. And mm-hmm. he and I would meet up from time to time. And then also a woman named Gigi Akasi, who is, was on Straight Outta Compton as a production supervisor, became an executive at FX. So between oh. the two, my name came up for the third season of Snowfall. And, you know, they, they brought me in the room. They, people saw I've done dramatic stuff. And I did this really small TV show for BET called Tales, which is a hip hop anthology show. And Tales is a very dark show. They take all these hip-hop songs and they make narratives out of them. They're one-offs. It's like a Twilight Zone kind of thing. Exactly. So every week was a different approach, a different story, different cast. And there I had, you know, started shaping all these different things. And they saw that and they were like, if you're able to do that with the money that BET's giving you, we think you can segue into something like this quite nicely. And this being Snowfall. Because everything is dark, gritty, hip hop, inner city for the most part. Some, and it it did. It, it and period. I mean, it's you know, period is hard to pull off, especially you know, it's hard to even just the stupid considerations of framing out things that shouldn't be there, or, right? You know, make, making it look exactly the way it looked back then. And I did a period piece in South Africa called Kalushi that you can see, which is a, a biopic about a young man that was killed for a crime he did not commit, and that was a mm. biopic in South Africa that took place in 1979, but yet it was shot in like 2015. You know what I mean? So mm. I've done a period piece in a foreign country along with dealing with like a gritty vibe within and of itself. So that's kind of the journey from the Carl Craig, Stan Lathan, Ralph Farquhar into like, I did a couple of indie movies of all the while being groomed by Maddie. And then John Singleton and Gigi kind of helped push me into the space of Snowfall. Well, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, your relationship with John Singleton or had, had you worked with him, who unfortunately just passed away not too long ago. And, you know, John Singleton, I think, is like one of the main voices of his generation of, of filmmakers. I mean, like, I, th- I think I'm a little younger than him, but I remember like going to see Boys in the Hood and I was growing up in Florida and just my mind blown, you know, and, and it's such a humongous loss. But like, what was the relationship with him? And, you know, can you impart any you know lessons oh, man, or wisdom that, was, that you learned? That's a great story because I had started when I was a, a PA back in, I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, and I was a production assistant 
in between New York because my sister Kyla got me into the business and she was doing casting at the time on hip hop videos for like Hype Williams and Brian LeVar and uh, mm. all these different people. And she brought me on to PA, her and a boyfriend, Rich. And I got an opportunity to work on a Spike Lee commercial. And I started working as a PA lighting guy for this brother named Cliff Charles and this other guy, Donovan Lambert, as a production assistant lighting person like so i was like learning on the job as a grip electric in new york i would take the bus down work and then go back to school in massachusetts at holy cross where i went to undergrad and i was doing that for years but then when i went to afi cliff charles the guy who hired me in new york to come down was starting to shoot for spike at the time Mm -hmm. cliff charles hired me to gaff when the levees broke the the anthology about the katrina the first one so I went to New Orleans, but I had developed a relationship with Spike over the years, slowly. And Spike Lee had a book signing here in South L.A. at Esawan Books, a black-owned bookstore in Lemur Park. Who comes in but John Singleton? Oh, wow. John and Spike are really good friends, you know? And that night was John Singleton's birthday. And he was like, hey, Spike, why don't you come to my house? We're going to have some people over. He's gonna, we're gonna, it was a book signing for Do the Right Thing, this uh, Teshin book. For do the right thing. So all the people that mm-hmm. worked on it, that lived in LA, Robbie Reed, all these different people that, that worked on it were at the book signing. And then Spike invited me to freaking John's house up the street from Whoa. the bookstore. So That's Spike crazy. Lee, literally, we walk into that because I drove Spike up to the house, which was like five minutes from the bookstore from Lemur Park. We go, go to the door. John answers the door. Spike Lee introduces me to John Singleton. And Spike That's Lee was like, you should intense. know this guy. You should know this young cinematographer <laughs> at the time. And we exchanged phone numbers at the door. And I used to hang out with John periodically, go over his house. But it's because of Spike Lee that I got my first introduction to John Singleton. But then it took some years to finally get onto a project with John. But Spike Lee is my introduction because he took me to John Singleton's birthday party one night (laughs) at his house. Wow, like being introduced uh, by one legend to another legend. That's got to be intense. Yeah, man, it's, it's kind of crazy. Spike has been kind of that guy in my, in my life over the years that I can't thank him enough from inspiring me from like watching Do the Right Thing and being in the movie theater from Malcolm X to like being in New Orleans and hanging out with them, doing When the Levees Broke, telling that story like, you know, four weeks after it all happened at Katrina and arguing yeah. with Spike Lee. There's pictures of me and Spike Lee arguing for years because I'm... I'm from Boston, uh-huh. and you know I'm a Sox fan, Celtics fan, Pats fan. Oh, and people have like 12 years of us yelling on set, and he still <laughs> hires me. I got I got stuff even from last year. I did a commercial, and everybody just waits. They wait for it. It's like a thing in town where a certain crew of folks they wait to see who's gonna talk shit first. Like literally. I mean, yeah. Well, that that was my next question. Was like, who starts it? Do you start oh, it or does he start it? I try to I try to have peace in the the, the recent years, and then Spike <laughs> just has to go. He, he has no. He just has to do it. Like he it can, he can't help himself. You know what I mean? But he's hired me for like literally over about twelve years on wow. different things. But it always comes up, and like I mean, he even did something in front of Magic Johnson once. That was the funniest one. I was operating, and I think the Pats had just lost the Super Bowl to the Giants. And Magic Johnson walks in the room and Spike Lee goes, and he waits. And there's like two guys from my neighborhood and from Boston. We're shooting in LA. And he goes, hey, yo, Magic, you see that, that guy right there? Magic, like, who, him? And he points to me in a room of like 60 people. He goes, he's from Boston. And Magic <laughs> is like, I knew I smelled the Larry Bird loving 
<laughs> and I'm like, yo, are you kidding me? Like, I've never met Magic Johnson before. Like, and I had to retort something. And I'm like, I can't believe Spike did this in front of everybody. And there's two guys from my neighborhood from Boston. We're from, I'm uh-huh. from Mattapan, which is the inner city like Inglewood. They take off and run out the room, right? One guy is like, they, they, they run out. And I go, I know Spike, I know you ain't talking, you know, you ain't talking mess being a Knicks fan. The whole place just went quiet. Oh man! Because <laughs> I think the I think the Celtics had just won the championship like the year before or something, so like you still have kind of bragging rights. But the Knicks have always sucked, so it's kind of like you know what I mean. So, <laughs> so I, he was I like, hope he hears this I podcast. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> <laughs> no. This is years ago, man. I did a couple of jobs with Magic since then, but Spike and I've done a bunch of jobs since then. But that's like my Spike Lee. It's one of my funny. Uh, Stories. It goes on for years. Like it's it's. <laughs> but I love Spike. I can't thank Spike Lee enough. I think Spike actually introduced me to Maddie Libertique as well. Spike oh, really? brought me on a job to operate. Maddie was shooting. Cliff Charles wasn't. And Spike introduced me to Maddie first. And then and that's like twelve years ago. And freaking Maddie and I have been compadres since then. It, you it know? all kind of comes together too, because uh, like when we had Maddie on the show, he was talking about how do the right thing was the movie that got him excited about being a cinematographer. And by the way, total side note, that was on uh, HBO or something last week, and I watched it. I hadn't seen it in years. That movie doesn't just hold up. Like, it was ahead of its time. That movie is so amazing. But, uh, you know, like, I I always think it's interesting when people kind of get to work with the people who inspired them in the first place to follow the path. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit more about Snowfall because oh, yeah, I'm excited sorry. to get in, in, into your background. No, no, no. Uh, so coming coming from Boston, though, and uh, but Snowfall is kind of chronicling a very serious issue and tackling it in, in, in an interesting way. Can you talk about sort of the, the visual approach? It's, it's always sticky, I think, to talk about TV because, you know, because, especially when multiple DPs are shooting the same series. But I, I'm always trying to dig to find out, like, where is the creativity for you and, like, what how, what is your approach to the the show and how to make it look like what it looks like. I mean, people hear me talk about this from time to time that, you know, Jeff Greeley and John Lindley, uh, ASC, had set up a visual language, you know, kind of off of the pilot. I forget the cinematographer's name. He's from Belgium. Really good pilot. And that tonality to break up the storylines was kind of, you know, held to in seasons one, two, and then in three, I still kind of kept to it. So you have the African-American storyline, the CIA storyline, the Hispanic storyline, right? It's a little like traffic a little bit, the, you know, right. the Soderbergh movie. Right, exactly. My approach was I, I kept to it for the most part in season three. And then like depending on who had the power in the scene, I would let that LUT, which is derived with a certain bit of color science, mm go into like that scene. Like, so if it was like uh, Damson and Teddy, but Damson had the power in the scene for some reason, then I would put the LUT that's African-American LUT. Oh, interesting. So then, and then I would, you know, depending, but see episode 10 of season three, the storyline started to cross over a little bit. You know, different things started to shift and, uh, and change, in which case I started to mix color a little bit differently on mm-hmm. that episode and I've kind of dragged that into my approach somewhat in season four because there's more crossover than there had been I feel in the other seasons all mm-hmm. deriving at least for me off of episode 10 
wherein Teddy and Franklin are, are crossing paths and going into business a bit more heavy-handed and and uh, Gustavo and, and, and Teddy going into business. So it's like I try to base my LUT choice on the empowerment and then the subtext I'll bring in a secondary color sometimes in the shadows or something like that. I won't play it as monochromatic because I think emotionally there's subtext going on and people are kind of sharing power, but who's sharing the most power in it? And it's like, where, where do they stand in the, in the power that they're, they're grounded in? I'm trying mm-hmm. to like figure out like, okay, so should I put a little, should I put an opposing color in here because something else is going on? And then sometimes it just, it feels emotionally right. Like, you know, for me, Snowfall is very expressionistic because I am an inner city kid that grew up in the 80s and 90s in a neighborhood that was dealing with crack cocaine, like firsthand, like I I saw it with, you know, just in my neighborhood and and how the neighborhood changed, own family members with substance abuse with crack cocaine. So for me, it's a different emotional starting point to a certain degree. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I definitely try to be a bit expressionistic because it's not a literal telling of a human being. It's like an amalgam. Even when John was alive, we talked about that. That it's not just one person's story about South Central. It's a bunch of people that he he's known and family members of his. You know, I, I think that's fascinating. And you said something earlier that that I want to know more about, which is when you're talking about introducing subtext through lighting. When you're working on a project, do you kind of create like a a legend, a code of what colors mean what? Or are are you thinking about that? Or is it more like you're in the scene and you want to throw in a complementary color? You want to throw in a bright color that that pulls your your eye in a different way? Like what what's the philosophy that kind of gets you to these ideas? As I read each script, I try to, you know, I go to the writer's room. And one thing I have to say is I can't, you know. I got to thank Dave Andron, who's a showrunner and kept the story going, even with the passing of John Singleton. And it's like, I he allows me to come in the writer's room. I listen to like the season, the season arc and all that stuff. I look at the board and with that access, we talk about what's the subtext, what are the other things going on? And I try to devise a certain Bible at the beginning of the season about where I would like things to go, per mm-hmm. se. And, you know, I've, I've shown it to Dave from time to time or certain episodes. I'll devise like a one or two pager PDF and I'll talk about what's going on and, and colors I may introduce, you know. And, you know, I did something this season on episode four. I believe it's episode four. Yeah. Where they go to the hospital and I kind of flipped the color on its head with Leon and Franklin. Mm-hmm. And you could see that at first, you know, Franklin is outside this hospital and then he comes in and the hospital shifts to like this blue, which he hasn't mm-hmm. really been photographed in. But I felt, you know, but I, all my practicals and like, for the most part, still retain the African-American warmth color, even though the base color is like this blue. And I, and I was just trying to express that like, you know, Leon and Franklin are at kind of a low of like where they are in their relationship, mm-hmm. you know, they're still in the context of the African American storyline, but they're they're at a, they're at a hard spot of like being at odds. And I did it. I, it's like I, I hope it works. You know, it's kind of like anything else in art. I'm influenced by fine art. My my undergraduate degrees in fine art studies and from from Holy Cross. And it's kind of like I take chances. You know, some mm-hmm. of the stuff you, you have a game plan. But, uh, you know, I'm a former football player, college football player, and it's just kind of like 
you take chances. Like you get to the line and you make a call. Like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes it's like you do what feels right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, as an artist, you don't, I don't stay really linear all the time. I have an idea of what I would like to do because of what's written in the black and white. And then when you put your feet on the ground and you see the blocking, then I get inspired to be like, maybe I can deviate from it a little bit. Maybe we can try this out. And and I think it works from time to time. I, you know, sometimes I think I go too far, possibly, but I think it's the space to try it out. <laughs> I'm kind of like. Well, you said it yourself. Expressionism, you know, to me, expressionism is a school of art that is about going pretty far. You know, yeah. about, about taking things away from realism. Right, right, and I think that's what Snowfall is. It's a, it's an expressionistic thought of what happened to my neighborhood what happened to south central chicago east st louis you know i grew up in an area because of what happened with crack cocaine the violence skyrocketed and my neighborhood of mattapan got the nickname of murder pan oh man it's just like one of those things it's uh so i'm reflecting on how i felt as a kid seeing drug dealers on the corner and seeing my relatives who were addicted to crack coming to our house asking for money you know what i mean like that's where yeah. I pull from. You know, it's it's different. And my, my cultural experience is different when I look at uh, learning how to photograph dark-skinned black people is kind of like a thing because I've been ingesting that information since I was a child. Both my parents and my complexion, my uncles and aunts are darker than me and lighter than me. And looking at those photos and looking at those people for years starting in my childbirth is is levels of ingestion of understanding light and way light looks at them between a fluorescent mm-hmm. and, a, and a tungsten source. And when I, what I remember the, those times, what are, what is dark, why it's dark. And like, you know, it's just the honest truth, man. That's where I pull from. You know, I mean, have you had, have, I mean, I know that you, you know, you've worked on some true stories and stuff like this, but it, it seems to me based on what you're saying, it's close enough to your experience. Like you're able to bring maybe a little bit more of your memory or your, your personal feelings about the stuff to the job, which doesn't happen. You know, if you're making a Star Trek show or something like that, you know, you, you don't get the opportunity to kind of put your whole self into it. Are you ever on set or even looking at the script and say like, Hey, well, in my, you know, like, have you, have you ever made a suggestion? Should I say like, well, this is sort of how it happened to me or do they look to you for that kind of stuff ever yeah it's not just me you know john helped devise a, a cultural like understanding on set there's a lot of black people that work on set and brown hispanic mm-hmm. folks who happen to be inner city youths at the time and they, they take suggestions from a lot of people if it's authentic dave andron is open to taking suggestions about mm-hmm. things that people say and do i mean you got to remember damson idris is from the uk He's an inner city kid, but he grew up in a different time period. So we have somebody, you know, we have Dub C from Westside Connection, who is like this old hip hop head who is dope, awesome human being. Mm-hmm. But he helps give Damson insight into what it was to be in South L.A. And and I'll mm-hmm. say stuff about culture like, yeah, I don't know if that would happen. Maybe this happened. I remember when my family was dealing with it and how people turn a blind eye to certain things and having fear of, of folks. You know what I mean? Like Eamon Joseph who plays Uncle Jerome, you know, he's from Harlem. And he grew up in Harlem in the 80s. So it's like there's a certain bravado that he brings to it and things that we say and do and how people react to stuff that I know what to look for. I can look at Eamon. I know he's going to give me a moment and I'll tell the operators, like, hang on Eamon just for a little bit longer. Because I know I know the <laughs> moment that I know what he's going to do for the moment and then go yeah. away from him. You know what I mean? It's just cultural nuances that come on the show because culturally this stuff... There's people behind the lens 
it's like that's what I even say about Spike Lee's stuff at times. It's like, you know, I love Spike's work, but one thing about Spike's work is it's authentically black. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Why does it feel different from everybody else? Because a lot of black people behind the scenes helping carve and craft these stories that Spike took a chance on. The same thing with John. That's why Boys in the Hood holds up. You know, there's a lot of people from the neighborhood that made that movie. And that's what's going on in Snowfall. There's a lot of us from the neighborhood and from the culture that make that show. That's why it feels different. You know, I think Snowfall feels different than any other show out there because there's it's not just in the writing, which Dave Andron has a lot of black people in the writer's room and Brown and, and Asian folks and but when we get on set, there's just a synergy and nuance that has been set up by John Singleton before he passed away that it, it resonates. I mean, that's a, that's a great tribute to him, too, to his talent in, in terms of just as, as a leader to kind of bring people together that it, you know, that it's outlived him and it's going to hopefully keep going. Mm-hmm. I, I was noticing when I was watching the show, too, that it seems like there's a lot of practical lighting. Like there's a lot of like big rooms that we walk into or, you know, large spaces that we then obviously get into close ups. But it seems like a lot of the lighting is kind of even part of the set in, in much of what I've saw, what I've seen of the show. Yeah, I, I try to make the practical the, the brightest element and then I'm putting mm-hmm. in like a, a base tonality that is complemented in the LUT. So like I'll put a base fill that's a few stops under and with that, that base fill, I kind of blend it just depending on the LUT. So I'm always looking at the color through the LUT space. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it by eye, it looks like one thing, but then you look at the monitor, it looks like something else because I'm twisting the color science of the LUT. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I use the Sony Venice is because it has bigger color space. It has 16-bit, which is bigger than the Alexa. Mm-hmm. And it has a higher ISO dynamic range. So then I can nuance things, I think, a bit easier than I have been able to on other camera systems. So I, you know, that's why I choose that camera. And so when it looks like it's just the practicals, there's a way that I'm also finessing that looking into the shadows and it's, it's never really like a, a straightforward base fill for me. It's always I'm bouncing off a surface, I'm using different colors that complement the skin tone or the practical or something. And so then they walk through it and they don't look lit. I try, I try my hardest to try to blend as much as possible. And then uh, I'll do something with like a pronounced key light when mm-hmm. I get into the close-up. That's still kind of like a lateral thing that's complemented by a base fill from over top. Snowfall, for me, I, I definitely try to, uh, the lenses are a part of my color temperature choices. So I choose certain oh. lenses at certain times because of color temperature and the way they look on brown skin tones. Whatever complements, I think, the best at the time for what the story is. I've chosen different lenses over the years. Some work better than others. You know, so for season... Can you, can you talk a little bit about, like, which ones work better than others? And I, I really love uh, super speeds. Like, talking to... Malik Zeiss. Saeed, uh, who's a Malik Saeed is is one of the guys I looked up to for years, and I saw doing music videos. I, I talked to him before I started Snowfall about some of the things that he likes, and he loves super speeds. And even Maddie said the same thing on Straight Outta Compton, where I did some second unit. Maddie has super speeds and Kawa anamorphics, and it's really the the color temperature of those look great with brown skin tones, in my opinion, when you project them out and take a look at what happens. And I used them on another show on Tails, and it, it did some great stuff between the color temperature and the flares of them. Um, it looked really good. And then I also used, on season three, I used the Super Speeds, then I jumped to K35s for the finale, 
mixed back with super speeds. Half of the story shot on K35s, the other half was super speeds because I want a different type of flare, but the K35 still had a level of uh, color temperature that was resonant of the super speeds, but it just mm -hmm. had different flares. It had a bigger, bolder flare for the alternate universe that we were photographing in the beginning of episode 10. Uh, this season, I started off on the Vantage T1s. The color temperature is a bit more, a little bit cooler. I thought I can make up for that in color, but then it, they just didn't have enough like panache for me. So mm. I, I I didn't really care for them that much. Elliot went back to the super speeds on his episodes, and I went over to, uh, oh, Cow Promenars, because I wanted a bit more uh, flare, bolder flare. And Cow Promenars are pretty warm, too. So I, I kind of approached it a bit because I, I like to backlight the hell out of places on the show. And I like mm -hmm. that, that pop of the flare. So I, I went over to the Cow Promenar Sephiricals. I hear you talking about like in terms of uh, photographing uh, darker skin tones that that going warmer seems to be something that you're trying to do or you're looking for lenses that, that give you a warmer look. It just for what this story is, I just I think it complements because like, I always think of it like this. Where am I? Where's my base neutral going to look like? If mm -hmm. I can get the best base neutral situation when looking at the brown skin tones between whatever the color science is of the camera and the lenses that I choose, then I can twist it to whatever I want. How? What's what's my best neutral spot, my starting point, and then from there I manipulate. That's the way I mm -hmm. like it because then I know I can always bring it back to that neutral spot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like it's just like uh, you know any other tool it's like if i know that my starting point is great then i have room to manipulate it the way i want so i have a, a huge question but i don't know like everyone has a different answer to this but it's like when you're talking about like breaking down a script and finding subtext and finding all these different shades and colors and and things that are in the script that maybe aren't there on the first read how do you organize those thoughts into something that's like a practical thing you use in your day-to-day -day on set or is it something that you just kind of file away in your mind and remember it when you're there. Everyone does it differently. Yeah. My, my thing is I, you know, read it the first time straight pass. Then the second time I start to see the rhythm and patterns of the storyline. And then the third time I start to highlight stuff and then I put it into a PDF mm -hmm. and I try to figure, show visual examples within this PDF of my ideas. And I break down like, you know, the beginning of what I think the story arc is then I talk about characters a little bit, and then I talk about visual arc that complements the story arc. And then from that point, I'll go into like the technical approaches of stuff all within this PDF. It takes time to like do, but it helps do me. Do you do it in like scriptation or something? Do you have a specific I way use you Keynote like on that? Oh, really? That. Just You're not the first person to tell us that. No, uh, several people have told us they use Keynote. Yeah, it's like it's, it's a great program, and I can pump, pump out PDFs from it and... You know, I use scriptation to read the scripts and to write notes mm -hmm. down, but I use Keynote in order to like to make these PDFs. And, you know, this one guy showed me the best example of it is a cinematographer named Keith Smith. And he had these amazing presentations and I would just like look at his stuff and then like try to copy it. He was like, here, take this, you know, take a look at it. He went to AFI before I did, uh, older African-American cinematographer who I admired for years. And it's like, he kind of showed me how to do these breakdowns. And ever since then, I've just kind of like, okay, I, I followed his template. And he was, you know, I'm glad he was open to showing me this. 
So after post AFI, uh, where did you see your path going? Like, what were you aiming towards? I feel like in those intervening years, the world has moved from being very feature centric to being very television centric. And it is at a certain point, you definitely jumped onto TV and have been doing you've done a ton of TV, but you've also done a bunch of features. Where did you see your, your life going at that point? Man, it's a weird journey. Uh, Maddie's always taught me, look at your own path. You know what I mean? Like, try not to look at her. But here goes mine. During AFI year one, I shot my first feature during my summer break, right? So I did an oh, indie wow. movie, you know, in Massachusetts and went home and did this movie. And then after AFI, I started gaffing for Spike Lee. My friend Cliff Charles was shooting commercials for him and I would fly around and mm-hmm. gaff stuff. And then Spike helped me transition to operating during that time. So at that point, you know, I was doing like commercials and then we got to about 2007 and somebody gave me an opportunity to shoot a studio movie summer 2007 it was a sequel for sony called three can play that game was a sequel it was going to come out in the theaters it was a small movie but the first one did really well and man the writer strike hit and then the actor strike hit Mm -hmm. so i went from like doing these movies i'm making pro i got into movies like it was only a few years after afi right and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be doing music videos. And music videos started to bottom out, like mid-2005 or so, coming out of yeah. AFI. There were still some, but they were like, they were slowly dwindling away. It was like the middle class dropped out. There's the micro budgets, and then there's, you know, a Beyonce video that's right, for millions exactly. of dollars, and there's nothing in between. Right, so that's what started. But I was steadily going into the, the movie sector of it all. And when those two freaking strikes hit, dude, I was like... I ended up in the reality TV space mm-hmm. and end up operating on reality TV. Back when my friend Terrence was still living in L.A. at the time, he got me on some reality TV. I got health insurance because they turned to be like union shows. And from that reality TV space, I would still try to jump on a movie here and there to operate. And then it was just like, you know, I was doing small TV projects like, you know, like small TV movies. But the thing was, it was so small. Come 2008, 2009, the, the, you know, the industry didn't bounce back fully, even by 2009. Well, I mean, not only were those there were those strikes, but we'd also just gone through a humongous recession. And it yeah. was like, I, I remember like years going by where I was used to just tripping over film shoots, driving down the street, and there were just no shoots going on at all in town. None. And that's all the way up until almost like 2009, 2010, man. I, by that mm-hmm. time, I got married and... It was just kind of strange. My wife was like, what's going on? Why aren't you working? I'm like, this is like a strike and recession. And it was just kind of like, you know, so I was in the reality TV space. I got more reality TV credits. And then, you know, I did like R&B Divas LA. I worked mm-hmm. on like, I worked out of the, the Braxtons. You know what I mean? Like, and it was funny because at this time, I'm like trying to like stir up business and make contacts with people. I worked with AFI's Alumni Association, in which case Rachel Morrison and I were both doing reality TV. Yeah. When we interviewed her, uh, Ilya, my co-host, wanted to ask her some questions about it. And she's like, I I just want to put all that in the past. Right. (laughs) Didn't want to talk about it. She and I used to sit around and talk about this stuff at freaking on Larchmont at this this little sandwich shop. And we were both at the same agent at the time. And Rachel and I, even though she, she remembers she just had finished... Uh, she was going to do Fruitvale. I remember she finished it and she was like, well, we'll see what happens. And of course she fucking explodes. (laughs) You know, but Rachel is like, you know, she, we were in that space because of just what the dynamics were. Cause she came after I did an AFI, but because of the economics and those strikes, 
that's what was happening. And then I just moved up from there into that TV space. You know, weren't as many movies being made, and and then TV just started, you know, gaining momentum. And with the Netflix of it all, TV has become like the golden age now. You know what I mean? Like, this well, it's sort of so it's like replaced independent filmmaking to a degree. It's not that independent filmmaking doesn't happen at all, but I sort of feel like the indie film crowd who would go into the art house theaters are now staying at home and watching Ozark or whatever. Right. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what's. But these are longer form stories too. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's not just standalone each week. You know, sitcom of the '80s, which has yeah. its own lane. This is like you know, this is great. Even like the the single camera stuff from like the '80s and '90s. A lot of that, the storylines never fully intertwined week to week. It was like it's kind of loosey goosey. You know what I mean? Like it was never yeah. referred to. Now they're like long form movies, which is they were great. like you got four networks. Where are you gonna go? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And Disney kind of owns all of them. You know what I mean? So, yeah, <laughs> now they do. Yeah, man. So that is kind of my journey. That reality TV space put me into narrative TV space. And then just as the opportunities have come, I kept trying to do the movie thing to, to get back into it. You know, I'm ready to do a movie, though. Yeah, I was going to. That was my next question. Like, you know, like, where do you sit on, you know, like, are you looking forward to making more features or, you know, because some people just love the steadiness of television. And that's that's totally fair, too. You know, features you're not going to do. You're not going to you could. I don't know how many episodes you could shoot in a year, but it's, you know, certainly in the double digits. And it's hard to do that with features. You're not going to make like 10 features in one year. That'd be insane. No, be crazy. Um, No, I I really want to do a feature film. I think it's time to do one after a mm-hmm. couple of seasons of snowfall. I, you know, I've been, I've talked to people about stuff and it just didn't work out, especially with COVID. It was just kind of like, eh, I'm not necessarily sure if I'm just ready to do a feature out of town at that point. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I'm ready to do a, a feature film. I think snowfall really gears towards to do a, a single story, a one-off of, of something that could be interesting. And to kind of circle back around to Snowfall too, it like it definitely has kind of feature film qualities in in the design of it, in the look of it, and in, in the yeah, quality of the acting. That was all, John's all, intention. John yeah. always kept saying that I don't want this to be a regular TV show. I want this to feel like a feature. I wanted to have featured, but FX does a great job with that too with their shows. They have you know Dana Gonzalez does great work on Fargo. I mean, you look at that. It's mm. like oh, oh yeah. You know, Dana's freaking kicks ass on that uh, amongst like, you know, Simon Dennis and his stuff he does with Ryan Murphy, who I just worked with the other day. But they do great stuff over there. You know what I mean? Uh, FX as a network, Atlanta. And so that John wanted that. He got it. I think he's I think he's done a great, you know, did a great job with it. And it's opened many doors for me, you know, because of that feature film design of the show and letting me, you know, him and now Dave Andron let me kind of run around a little bit crazy at times to, to do some of the stuff. Uh, Elliot and I both have had more opportunities because of this show. You know, Elliot's doing a feature right now in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Where, where there is no COVID, so. <laughs> Don't even get me started. It's a lot oh. of hate for Elliot right now. I always say in all these interviews, Elliot is, is eating scallops and, and drinking wine without a mask. I, you know? <laughs> I love Elliot. I love, I love Elliot on so many different levels. So uh, I think we're kind of close to time here. I always like to ask people, are there any of the projects that you've worked on that you feel like people don't hear about enough that you think more people should check out? I would say Kalushi, the mm-hmm. movie I did is on Netflix, about the, which is a biopic, a true story about Solomon Mashlangu, who was a, a freedom fighter in the ANC during the 70s and was 
killed for a crime he did not commit. Mm-hmm. It really helped my career. It's a great story. It's about you know justice and the, the the climate of South Africa at the time, and that somebody so young became a mortar. And then something that you can really get a sense of my approach on Snowfall is if you watch season one of Tales that. Uh, music producer Irv Gotti, who did like Murder Inc. back in the day with like Ja Rule mm-hmm. and Ashanti and all them, he was the producer and creator of. I did season one and I did episodes like one, then like three, four, five, six or something, and then episode ten. But mm-hmm. there's there's some good stuff. You find the episodes that I did, I really liked it because each week, as a story changed, I changed the lenses, I changed the palette, I changed all these different stuff. The stories are are, are pretty good, but it is it, it shows you what I like the, the diversity of range of trying things out and like being a cinematographer, if you ever have a chance to work on something like that, or even just taking chances, I think tales is a, is a good thing to just take a look at. Like, like the stories or not, I think it just shows some of the stuff I did from the first episode of what's called fuck the police, which is a interesting tale of like racial injustice, but just some of the chances that I took, you know, Mm-hmm. on it and then you look at something like children's story which is another one i went to black and white and just the difference in the approaches so before we conclude where can people find you online if they want to check out more of your work or if you're on social media and like to interact with people some people don't yeah i mean maddox dp is my my website you can always mm-hmm. submit you know questions there or instagram the maddox dp on, on IG. I, I, if, if i may say uh, of your website virtually every dp that we have on here is like don't look at my website it's out of date it's 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 old or whatever and your website was super current like <laughs> it, was, it had stuff from uh from snowfall on it like it had it had so much uh, amazing stuff on it it was uh as i was you know kind of researching you before the interview it was an amazing resource to kind of get a a, a sense of the vibe of what you do oh thanks and here's a good story for cinematographers I had a friend who used to cut my reels for me. He was great. But my friend also had a family and he had a job, right? And I loved him to death, my boy Manny. The thing is though, I couldn't wait for him to cut my stuff and to like help yeah. me put a site together. And my wife at the, you know, my wife was always putting these little websites together for her business. And I was like, so what's this, what's this platform you're using? And I'm not an IT guy at all. Yeah. I put that stuff together myself. I would sit there on YouTube night after night do it in 10 minute chunks. So I put all my stuff up on my website. I learned, I went and bought Final Cut 10 on, on this same MacBook Pro that I'm talking to you on. Mm-hmm. And I figured out how to cut my reel together, post it, make transitions, do all this stuff. Cause I just got fed up because of the turnaround time, which will kick your butt if you're trying to get up for new things. And just to be able to control what images I want people to see of my stuff. So I can get rid of things fast and repost things fast and, and I connected my stuff through my Vimeo. But like you have to get kind of fed up after a certain point because it really doesn't take that much. All you need is a laptop and a lot of the yeah. platforms are, are designed to interact with each other now, you know, and just watch a couple of YouTube videos. Just do 10 minutes a day. And if all you got is a minute worth of good stuff, put your best minute forward, but at least manipulate your minute to show your best foot. And you can get on something like Squarespace and use their prefab template and move stuff around and just watch tutorials on YouTube. Like it seems like a lot, but if you do 10 minutes a night after a week, you'll have a full website. 
you know, mm. so I appreciate what you said about my website. You know, that's I the way I am. Actually, your frustration describes exactly how I learned how to edit and editing is something that I often do for money now. So like I got I got tired of waiting for people to give me a favor and, 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 and edit for me. And I taught and I just learned how to do it myself. Anyway, uh, it's it's amazing talking to you. Uh, anyone who uh, is listening to this, please check out uh, Snowfall on FX. And I, I can't wait to see what you do next. Just amazing work. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Tommy Maddox Upshaw. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to uh, to finish up Snowfall. So, uh, Ben, guess what? What? I said that really <laughs> angry. I don't care. I'll let it, I'll let it stay. What? What, it's, Ilya? What now? It's time to pay the bills. Oh, man, it's my favorite time. <laughs> yes, that's right. We have to thank our fine friends over at Aperture, maker of high-quality LED lights for uh, independent filmmakers, for professional filmmakers, everyone in between. Uh, they actually came out with something, and this isn't a product, and they have a lot of cool products, but uh, actually I'll mention one of them because it kind of plays directly into this. They came out with an accessory compatibility chart. This is something I wish that more manufacturers would do. Um I think that some manufacturers might shy away from it because sometimes uh, sometimes there's third parties, there's other people who are making products that are compatible with their own products and they want to sell mm. their own products. But but Aperture went ahead and did this and uh, this compatibility chart shows all the accessories that they make for all the lights that they make and also the third parties who are making accessories for their lights. And that's oh, super, super handy, especially because uh, they have got some extremely popular lights like the um, 120D Mark II and the, and the 300X and the 300D II. These lights have like almost 20 different accessories out there available. And these include like reflectors and uh, ellipsoidals, also known as Lecos, uh, Fresnels, which are uh, focusable lenses that go, they go in the front barn doors from, uh, you know, a couple of different styles, plus all manner of diffusion, soft boxes, light domes, lanterns, you name it, space lights. It's all there. And it's really easy to forget what fits with what and what goes with what without this sort of diagram. Now, Aerie is pretty famous for doing this sort of thing on the camera side and for their you know remote focus systems and giving you all the Aerie parts, but they fall short of, you know, actually plugging in like the third parties, the people who are making stuff that's also compatible. And I got to, you know, give a tip of the hat to Aperture for uh, for for putting that out there to say, hey, look, you know, we make these great products. There's some other people out there making products that are compatible. And, uh, you know, we want everyone to know about all of them. And I think that's I think that's wonderful. I think Aperture uh, definitely doing, you know, the community a service, doing their customers a service by making such a handy chart. And we will put a link to it in the show notes or we'll post it on the show notes so you can check out and see all the different parts and pieces that fit along with every aperture light. And uh, yeah, if there's something in there that you didn't know existed, now you'll know. That's brilliant. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Aperture. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And now, short ends. All right. So, so Ben, uh, short end time. Where are you with a short end? You got an obsession this week? I really do have an obsession. So uh, because I, uh, you won't be surprised as to how I stumbled upon this. Is it a podcast? No. <laughs> it is not a podcast. Not a podcast okay. this time. YouTube has an algorithm that, you know, feeds you what you think you want. So it fed me a channel that had an episode in which the title card from the thing was recreated. So it is a, like, 
how to do a DIY filmmaker kind of thing, and also John Carpenter's The Thing. So that kind of gives you uh, those two those two axes give you an idea of what I look for on YouTube all the time. And so it is a channel called In Camera. And uh, it is from some uh, really amazing physical effects people who work in the UK and they have a they have a studio and they do physical effects. And some of the episodes show how they do stuff for actual movies. So like they did a thing. uh, There's an episode where how to come where they're compositing real fire elements onto a body burn where the the filmmakers didn't have a, a big enough budget to do a full body burn. So they added they shot new original fire elements to composite onto there. They do an episode that I, the thing one was brilliant because uh, for those of you who don't know it, John Carpenter's the thing, the opening title card, which shows the earth and a UFO flying towards the earth. And then it fades out as the words, the thing in their logo show up and burn away and, and kind of have volumetric light coming at us. It was actually shot practically. So they like made a cutout of the title and had a smoky room with a light behind it. And they do a whole episode on recreating that. Then they do an episode on how to just do volumetric lighting with anything, how to like make a title card. And they actually made their own logo. They, they did a volumetric lighting thing uh, with that. They did a thing where they, they created a cloud field using, uh, you know, the stuffing material that you would have in a pillow or something like that. They tell you what it is. They tell you everything. How they did it. And that one I thought was also interesting because they wanted lightning strikes in it and they used 40 year old flash bulb elements that would be in like a, a Polaroid camera from, you know, the 1980s or 70s that are single use. But they like wired them in there and they got amazing lightning bolts that are not lightning bolts, but, you know, like in the cloud lightning flashes. And there's just something very tactile and inspiring about the work that they're doing, uh, showing how to do stuff practically, showing that stuff can be done practically. And it's it's very demystifying, I think, for uh, even for me, even jaded old me who's been doing this forever. <laughs> it's very demystifying to look at what they're what they're doing. They show how to shoot miniatures. They show how to shoot ex- small explosions. And they're always like, you know, emphasizing the safety uh, of how it should be done. And they're, uh, also as a former makeup effects person, they they do one episode that's uh, interviewing a guy who's like making affordable silicon prosthetics that people could use in their own movies and and kind of talks through the whole prosthetic process and and how it's done today and it's this guy he does like stuff on game of thrones and stuff he's a, he's a super legit special effects makeup guy they're all uk based and uh, i really do just sit there and watch episode after episode they haven't been around that long i think they launched the channel maybe six or eight months ago, but they already have a good deal of content up there. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I've subscribed and I'm looking forward to uh, whatever they drop next. All right. I haven't even watched it, but I just hit subscribe. You convinced me. It's totally the type of thing that I would want to watch. And uh, now I'm the 27,801st subscriber. So they've already like kicked serious butt and got a bunch of subscribers to their to their channel. No, they're doing great. And the thing is that like we live in this world that's obsessed with the digital process of making stuff. And, you know, I'm as excited as anyone else by somebody like Andrew Kramer at Video Copilot showing how to do some amazing effects using usually After Effects or Cinema. 40 or whatever but you know what i know from about after effects like 80 percent of it i learned from his website and these guys don't shy away from that stuff like they use after effects and they show you how they use after effects when they shot the miniature they shot they shoot the psycho house mm-hmm. and they did several passes of lighting and different lighting effects on it it's a locked off shot so they were able to basically create a bazillion different effects on that house just with lighting 
and then they could composite it and they show you how they do it in After Effects. And so, you know, to me, it's a modern approach that feels more tactile and, and physical than digital. And, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not, again, I'm not anti-digital, but I think that it's great that somebody's out there showing people the possibilities of, of doing it physically. And I think that when you do it, when you do stuff practically, it has a look that ages much better. Like when you do something with Maya or, you know, whatever, Houdini, you can do amazing work in these programs. Cinema 4D, there's there's tons of them. Blender, I'm seeing amazing work done in it, but I feel like it ages itself. You know, you'll be able to spot it and be like, oh yeah, that's what Blender could do in, in 2017 because they didn't add specular blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't, I don't know enough about what I'm talking about, but you can sort of see it. It's like, it looks video gamey, but like their cloud, uh, the clouds that they make, just look, you know, I mean, they're stylized and they're, and they talk about why they're doing it in a stylized way, but it doesn't have that digitally look to it. I, th- I feel like the stuff will age much better. That's my opinion. I know people disagree. Kays would come up here and disagree with me immediately. <laughs> uh, but, but Kays is good that way. He's a, he's a contrarian. He's going to, he's going to, he's, he's going to find ways to, to disagree. Our composer. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, what is your short end this week? You know, I, I hate to I hate to give any extra press or notoriety to the DJI Corporation. Uh, the DJI Corporation, famous for making gimbals and drones, drones, you know, in, in particular, has released something called the FPV. And the FPV, it's a new drone, it stands for first person view. And is that the one that was used for that bowling alley shot that everyone's looking at? Or did I just ruin you? I just steal your thunder. No, not at all. I'm sure that pretty much everybody and their brother who listens to this podcast has seen that bowling alley thing go down, which was uh, someone flying a first person view drone through a bowling alley and doing all kinds of really risky and crazy stuff and everyone cheering and going, wow, this is so wonderful. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that little accidents can cause big damage and big and big mistakes. <laughs> and they're, they're also, you know, these online YouTube or Facebook style uh, novelty videos to try to help uh, promote the businesses that uh, this this drone pilot is wanting to to um, to promote right now, which is, of course, trying to get people to go back to movie theaters and, and bowling alleys and, and things like that. I think that's that's wonderful that they want to support businesses. Um, but FPV uh, drone racing style where you're you're seeing through the camera, the front facing camera of the drone, and it's flying at extremely high rates of speed extremely dangerous and it's not like this hasn't been available and inexpensive before you could buy these things actually for a fraction of the cost of what dji is selling it for but um because they have such incredible reach and such incredible marketing really you might argue that dji is a marketing company as much as as any of the technology that they sell you will look like a complete uh sci-fi villain uh you know extra when you wear the goggle set that comes with this it is this bizarre a sort of chromed maybe not chromed but like space gray and black goggle headset with these four antennas that look like they're shooting out of your eyes you you look you'll look mm. like a, a you know a, absolutely a villain wearing this thing you just sold one to me i just want to look <laughs> like that i don't even need the drone i just want to walk around like that hey for thirteen hundred dollars it could be you you could you could be walking around with it and flying the drone uh, here's the thing it doesn't make for good cinema you know uh, you know novelty shots like these uh, notwithstanding doesn't exactly make for cinema where you want to ch- typically be very controlled and give people you know a, a good view of what it is they're looking at this is for like zip zap whiz bang how quickly can we fly past something you only saw it for a second it's not for cinema but uh if you're in the sound of my voice and you were thinking that hey you know what i might want to get into drones i might want to get into drones for cinema or 
television or content, about the worst thing you could possibly choose to do is get into the first person view for that. If you wanted to have something for fun and you're going to go out and do it safely, that's wonderful. But uh, but yeah, do, do not consider an FPV drone for cinema. You will be uh, sadly mistaken and uh, you should spend your money elsewhere. I think that's a really valuable thing you've said, because I think like a lot of people, as soon as I was reading articles about how they shot that, I was looking up that drone and seeing how much it would cost. Not that I'm going to run out and get a drone, but mostly I'm just I'm just kind of curious. You know, I think in the back of my mind, it's like, oh, it would be cool if I had a job that needed a drone that forced, you know, quote unquote, forced me to go out and buy one so I could have a drone. But also being a drone, uh, being a real drone photographer, like that's actually hard to do. Like that's a skill that takes time to hone, just like any other kind of camera operator. A hundred percent. And it's typically very controlled, very planned out, not uh, flying by the seat of your seat of your pants. No, I mean, that video doesn't look like it could have been flying by the seat of their pants because that camera is like going through spaces that are barely bigger than the drone itself. And so I assume they had to like very carefully program how they were going to do that. I don't think it's quite so much programmed as they had people hold really still and that uh, they didn't want anyone to make any sudden movements. So they didn't get uh, horribly injured. So by oh having boy. something fly into their body. So well, anyway, even like, hey, you know, it like it's like going through crevices between two walls and stuff where I'm like, you know, like maybe they had to do it 400 times before they got that right. I don't know how many, you know, maybe they destroyed six drones while they were shooting it. I don't I'd love to know the whole story of that shot because it, it really is. It's an impressive clip of video that, you know, is does get your attention the way it's intended to. No doubt. If for some reason the algorithm of your social media accounts hasn't shown you drone in bowling alley, pretty sure that those words will pull it up and you'll be able to to see this. And then you can follow it up with drone in movie theater, which is basically the exact Oh, I didn't same know that thing. there was a drone in a movie theater. I'll have to check that out. There, there is. It's incredibly similar. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. When, <laughs> once you've had my, my, my socks totally knocked off once, the second time it's like, oh, oh, oh drone okay. doing life you know life threatening moves in a small space what have you done for me lately <laughs> yeah for, remember the first time you saw a drone in fireworks it's like <laughs> that's amazing the ninth time you've seen it you're like yeah yeah drone in fireworks yeah okay great it's like in Thanks. the early days of cinema when they had like the train pulling into the station and people were ducking and running out of the way you know the first time it was you know like heart heart pounding and like the 50th time someone's like oh oh it's a train pulling up to the to the camera crazy I heard someone who tried to debunk that story and told me that it was like it was one showing and everyone was really drunk and no one wanted to admit it afterwards. They were fooled by this technology. So that it, no one that really after that. And then when they had like sober audiences, no one actually believed that the train was coming to run them over. And that it was the the, the Lumiere brothers uh, didn't actually have the success of fooling people the way. So that, just a bunch know. of losers. Just a bunch of losers freaked out about a train that was going to, and they're all, by the way, all of them, a hundred percent of them are dead right now. All of oh, they them. are. Their descendants. They're so even, dead. So. Their kids yeah. are dead. Their grandkids are old. Uh, anyway. So Ben, uh, I think that pretty much does it. We got to thank some people. Uh, who should we thank? Uh, number one, no one to thank more than, uh, than Alana Cody who lined up this and most all, if not all of our interviews, holy crap, she does such a great job. Uh, producing this show and uh, keeping the the train to to strain our previous story to turn that into a metaphor. Keep the train on the tracks and scaring the audience. 
is scaring us. Scaring yes. us. Get out of the way. Here comes the train. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's thank uh, Kays, who, you know, the before mentioned uh, person who's not listening to this show, but, you know, is argumentative and a uh, denier and contrarian. He will, uh, no, no. I'd he, say he uh, enjoys a, a spirited conversation about a controversial topic or two. I, I think one or two. I, I can't yeah. wait to en- engage with him again in such a, a tete-a-tete. Uh, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Our, our ben in- Katz, whose life we did not make easy with this episode, and I feel really awful about it right now. No, and, and I'm not even drunk, but but no, we d- really didn't make it. Uh, I don't even drink. Easy. I'm stone sober all the time, <laughs> so I have no excuse. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Hey, hey uh, speaking of Ben's, Ben, where can people find you? Uh, please go to benrockonline.com and uh, you can find some of my work and some other stuff and also links to all my social medias and people have been doing that and adding me on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff and I see you and I appreciate you. Thank you for seeking me out. And Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras. Hot Red Cameras, the sponsor of the show. Uh, we sell all manner of uh, camera equipment. And if you'd like to uh, work with a small business that is friendly and technically competent, give us a ring. We, uh, we're, happy, <laughs> we're, we're, ha- we're happy. Friendly to help and you. technically competent. Is that on your uh, your business card? It, it really should be because those are, it turns out, the things that separate us from from other businesses that are large, unfriendly, <laughs> and not technically competent. Large, which- <laughs> large mouth breather corp. <laughs> Uh, yeah, your words, not mine. But but yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, I think that's just about going to do it for us. So so Ben, uh, next week we'll have a, another fantastic episode, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Mm